Thank you. Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of the FIFA Arab Cup Roundtable podcast. Well, we're at the quarterfinal stage and we've called in some substitutions. Uh, Hassanin, Maher, they're out. With us today, a new face, an expert in Qatari football. Ahmed, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thank you so much, Basu, for having me uh, on the show. Uh, my name is Ahmed Hashim. I'm an Indian football writer. I live in Qatar. I was born and raised in Qatar, and I've been following the game here in the country for more than uh, 15 years now. And I run the page Qatar Football Live, where we cover the Qatari football uh, in English, and we try to promote the game and show something that the world has not seen. Great. And where can the fans find you? We, uh, we can be found on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle QFootLive, that's Q-F-O-O-T Live. And my personal handle on Twitter is Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D-H underscore nine three. Fantastic. And of course, a familiar face with us. He's done four straight now. Iron Man of the podcast, Maron Mahmoud. Uh, who, which national team are you going to dump on uh, today after dumping on so many of them in the last podcast we recorded? Yeah, I think I'm going to uh, keep uh, ranting about uh, West Asian football, uh, especially uh, in the, near the Middle East. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a nice episode today. Uh, four matches, a lot to talk about, a lot to cover. So, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and listen, spoiler alert, I'm not going to tell you the results of this match just right now. Morocco, Algeria. If you didn't watch it last night, let's say you live in one of those countries where they have the full matchup on YouTube on FIFA's page. Pause it. Pause this podcast right now, whether you're listening on Spotify or YouTube. Obviously, you know, give us a thumbs up, follow us, and all that good stuff. Go watch that match. Dedicate the, the two hours or so it takes to watch that match. Then come right back to us because it was that good match of the year. So spoiler alert over. We're going to get straight into it. Ahmed, you were there last night. Um, let's start off with just the atmosphere. I think probably the, the two best sets of supporters uh, at this tournament. What was that uh, atmosphere like at the at Thumam Stadium? It was literally amazing. I mean, although you could say that the stadium was not completely sold out, you could see certain sections of the stadium uh, we had empty seats, but the the sections where the fans are packed into, I think that was the place to be in Doha last night. Uh, it was literally, uh, I think it was like, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it was the right word, but they were jumping up and down. They were noisy and boisterous throughout the 90 minutes. And uh, you don't see that in a local football game in Qatar. So for anyone who's in Qatar and who loves football, this was the place to be to enjoy a kind of a match like this, a spectacle like this. And you could see that coming into the stadium. I mean, I, I arrived 10 minutes after kickoff because there was a long way to go from the parking to the stadium. And there were just too many people there, too many people. And we had to walk through, uh, I think, uh, two different parking lots to get into the stadium. And you could see the people swarming in from all sides. Uh, with their flags and, and their colors and uh, it was a brilliant sight and I just couldn't miss it so uh, I think it was the best match that I've attended in this tournament or probably during my time in Qatar it was uh, that good it was that good 
And uh, the match itself, uh, as we all saw, was uh, very uh, well fought, very hard fought, very passionate uh, performances from the players involved. So um, I didn't really expect that it would go on to, uh, to extra time, to be honest. But uh, the way it went on, even though it was too late, the match started at 10 p.m. local time. And by the time I got home, it was uh, 3 a.m. Even though it got that late, it was really, really worthwhile to be there at the stadium and to enjoy this match. Yeah. Do we have, just before I throw to Maron, do we have uh, attendance figures? It was visible that there were some empty pockets in the stadium. For Mama, I think it's one of the bigger um, stadiums being used for this competition. Did they announce the official attendance? Uh, roughly, how, uh, as a percentage, how full was the stadium based on the uh, attendance figure announced? Looking at the stadium from, uh, from inside, I thought that it would be around uh, 65% or 70%. And I've seen a figure on, uh, on Wikipedia. I'm not sure if that's accurate. It says 25,000 or 28,000. And I think that's, a, that's an accurate figure. Uh, the total capacity is 40,000. Okay. So I guess not really one of the, the larger statements. That 40,000 40, figure, I believe, is the minimum uh, size allowed in order to host a FIFA World Cup match. And FAMAMA will be doing that in less than a year's time. Uh, Maro, before we get into dissecting this game, there's a bit of Twitter drama around the statistics uh, surrounding both national teams. And what we had heard over and over again coming into this tournament was that Algeria was chasing the record that uh, Italy set earlier this year, which is 37 matches unbeaten. They came in with 33. They won their three group stage games. So if they avoided defeat uh, and progressed to the semifinal, they would equal that record. But then FIFA tweeted something differently. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And does Algeria have a point or do the Moroccans have a point? Because the Moroccans are bringing up the fact that this Algeria side did lose to them in one of the Chan championships. Yeah, uh, that's a big, big, big debate. Uh, the thing is that there is no uh, yes or no, which is odd uh, because uh, we're talking about numbers. So uh, it should be like yes or no. But the thing is that there are, there are no set uh, boundaries or rules for a game to be considered an international game or not. Because uh, uh, let's take an example. I think we talked about before uh, with Hassanin. There was a game in Lebanon in 2012, I think. Lebanon versus Iraq. And that game didn't go uh, as uh, Iraq wanted. I think we drew or something. And if it was considered in the FIFA ranking, uh, the, Iraq would lose a pot and be drawn into pot three instead of pot two or something like that coming into the next qualifiers. So what they did, uh, they did not send a report to FIFA. Therefore, it's uh, it wasn't really counted as a FIFA match. But... Uh, uh, what can we consider that this game was not played or unofficial? Of course not. Everything was uh, by the book, except that they did that. Uh, no, no official didn't send a report. Same case uh, between Lebanon and Syria in 2017 in women's football. Uh, no official in the Lebanese Football Association forgot to send a report in time, so the game was not counted into the FIFA rankings of both teams. So uh, that's. Uh, 
that's very silly uh, rule to put, especially now in social media. Like you can watch the game and make your own report. It's not something uh, very odd. So uh, uh, saying that, we, let's go by the facts. The facts are that the invitations were sent for the senior national team. I've read this invitation for South Sudan. It was uh, brought by late South Sudan. To, and then they did not participate in the qualifiers, but uh, Infantino sent it, I think, in the name yeah. of FIFA. And it spe specifically said it's for a senior team. Therefore, this side that is playing now is a senior team. Therefore, when Mehdi Zen, let's say, debuted against Algeria, I'd consider it a debut for Lebanon because it's playing against a senior team. I don't care who they call up. They can call up the under-14 for all I care. But they are playing as a senior team for me. That's the set that I put for myself and my work as an archivist and a statistician for Lebanon. So, but what uh, about the champ? Because I think it comes down to whether or not you consider that championship in Africa for local players to be the equivalent of a senior A national match when there's the added stipulation that each national team can only call up players playing in um, the country they represent. That would Algeria will have to uh, the Algerian FA will have to dispute this because if they do that they need to consider all games of the HN either official or unofficial they cannot consider like the 2019 ver, uh, edition was uh, was not in our favor so let's not ex uh, accept as a, a senior national team and let's uh, let's accept the 2000, uh, 2020 version I'm I'm talking bullshit but yeah. So that inconsistency, especially in FIFA, like in FIFA, uh, there are there are a big difference between how many games I have for, for Lebanon and how many games they have. Even the top scorer of Lebanon is, is different for me than for FIFA, let's say. And we're talking, we're not talking about the pre-war, we're talking from the 90s and so on. Yeah. When uh, it's uh, FIFA, basically what they did is hired some amateurs and told them we have the word, sort their statistics. And they gave them resources and everything, but they were amateurs. Uh, just like me when I started, but I've been I've been doing this for one year and a half or two years now, and I've been talking to a lot of people who've been here for 20 and 30 years doing statistics in, in, in the world. So I've got, so it's like hiring me to do that for the whole world. It's not gonna work. You need yeah. uh, some expert to do it. And we, since we don't have any set rules, it's just like the Ballon d'Or. Messi deserves it. Lewandowski deserves it. Algeria. This is the first team of Algeria. This is not the first team of Algeria. This debate will not not be settled until there's a set of rules that we can abide to. Yeah. Well, I, I think the Algerian team will claim it. Uh, I think I buried the lead to not to help avoid spoilers for our listeners out there. I'm going to tell you what happened. The game ended 2-2 after 120 minutes. It went to penalties. Algeria uh, prevailed on penalties. They are now 37 matches, or at least they claimed, and FIFA also claimed on their social media accounts uh, earlier this year that they had uh, equaled the record, and they said 33 matches unbeaten, I think right after African qualifying wrapped up for 20 21. So let's get into this game and let's really dissect what happened here. Um, a little bit of background. 
Uh, Morocco came in flying. I mean, two 4-0 wins over Jordan and Palestine made them look absolutely amateurish. They rested all their players against Saudi Arabia. They still won. Their record was nine goals scored, nine points, zero goals conceded. But Algeria showed that they were able to match that intensity. And Ahmed, I'm wondering, what did that look like in the stadium? Because presu- I presume we've seen some other games at this tournament. But one thing that really stood out to me was just the, the precision, the quality, and the pace of both teams. I mean, it was just full-on intensity for the 120 minutes. Well, to be honest, from the beginning, uh, or as I, I said, I came in 10 minutes late. But from what I could see in the first half, Algeria was, uh, was a much better side. And uh, the Moroccan players were not up to the mark. They were slipping up and making uh, silly mistakes. And I watched the game with a friend of mine and he came because he was hyped up by, by what he had heard of Morocco and he hadn't watched Morocco before. And he was asking me, is this the same Morocco side that was playing so well in the, in the group stage? And uh, I'm not really sure what happened, but maybe they were uh, overwhelmed by the occasion, but they didn't uh, do as well as I thought they would in the first half. And it was mostly Algeria. Um, I think uh, Yassin Brahimi, once again, uh, led by example, he did uh, pretty well too. Uh, although I would criticize him that uh, he doesn't move the ball around, he doesn't pass the ball much uh, as much as he should. But I think he was, uh, was a very good uh, captain yesterday. And uh, obviously there was no Baghdad Bunja to lead the attack for Algeria because uh, he wasn't deemed fit after the concussion that uh, he suffered in the last game. I would have loved to watch him, but uh, I think his health and his safety comes first. So even then, even without Bunja, I think Algeria did very well. And it was in the second half, to be honest, that things got you know a little different and uh, the intensity went up a bit. So uh, I think I really enjoyed the second half much more than the first half. Yeah, to start the second half, actually, there was, uh, I believe, a, a two great saves within the first two minutes of that. Half, one of which is Nati made with, um, let's say, a part of his body where the sun don't shine. Uh, and really, Algeria, I think, deserved their lead. They made the breakthrough. I think it was the 58th minute. Uh, Belayli uh, drawing contact from Mohamed Shibi. It went to VAR. From the stands, how did that look like to you? And Moron, let me also get your opinion. A penalty or no penalty for that flailing leg that uh, caught Yusuf Belayli in the 58th minute. Um, Marwan, let me know your thoughts. I think it was 50-50. Uh, I don't think that it's too deserving. I usually go with the referee on those calls, like a 50-50 calls. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I think that he made the right call in that, in that moment. Okay, he needed to go to VAR. Uh, Ahmed, how did that look like from the stadium, from your perspective? Penalty or no penalty? From the place where I was sitting, it wasn't uh, clear at all. And I haven't, re- I haven't seen the replay as of now. But uh, I can just tell you about the reaction from the stands when the referee pointed to the spot that was uh, a deafening roar from, from the Algerian section. I was sitting near the Algerian section. And... Uh, it was like the same roar that I heard from the Egyptian fans when, when the decisive yellow card was given to uh, Algeria's, uh, I think it was a Sudani in, in, in the end of their yeah. game. 
So it was as if they had scored a goal and they were so sure that they had taken the lead. And uh, obviously we saw the, the penalty. It was a very cool effort. And uh, at that point, Morocco stopped singing. The Moroccan fans stopped singing and they were bouncing up and down continuously until that point. But as you know, just a few moments later, the, the tables were turned and uh, it was the other side of the stadium that was singing when they equalized. Yeah, and here you're getting on the end of a free kick, but marking really, really questionable from, from Algeria. And then, yeah, it did sort of flip. One of the things that sort of struck me was, um, you know, the fans were going all out and it just seemed that, you know, anytime where we stopped a little bit uh, you know, at the end of normal time between the two halves of extra time, everyone was sort of like catching their breath because, you know, you just felt that the players were expending a lot of energy and also the fans because it was just, near constant singing and we've seen you know fans here and there of, of whichever team you know get into it but we've also seen a lot of lulls i think for both sets of supporters you know when their team was playing it was like almost constant noise of it just going and going and going and going and then you just had like the emotional roller coaster so i mean the moment of this game and i know i think they they just announced the puskas goal of the year winner i think that was or maybe they're going to so I think it's too late of an entry for 2021, but definitely a contender for 2022. Uh, Yusuf Leili, how did he even think to shoot from there? And surely this is the goal of the tournament. Listen, you know, I, I, I have my horse in the race. You see the Palestine jersey in the background. I was hoping the one thing we would win was goal of the tournament with uh, Mohamed Rashid's effort. But uh, listen, I think we have to give it to Leili. That was just fantastic. What did that look like from the stands? We had some, as you said, we had some really great goals during this tournament. Uh, the effort by Mohamed Rashid and uh, the goals. Um, I think the Tunisian player, I think uh, the Syrian player, Anis, uh, also had a great uh, effort. And uh, Ahmed Rifat for Egypt. We had some great goals in, in this tournament so far. But what we saw yesterday was out of this world. And, and I was actually, I was looking away when, when he struck the effort when he struck the ball, but I just saw it dipping and then moving past the goalkeeper and the stadium erupted and nobody, nobody expected him to shoot. Although he's capable of doing that and he's done that before. And he's the kind of magician with the ball who, you know, who weaves his magic and does this sort of thing. But uh, nobody expected him at that point in time, in extra time to score from that, that part of the pitch. And I think you could see from his reaction, from his celebration and, and, and from the stands that it was an amazing moment. And to be honest, I thought Algeria could take it from there, that they had what it takes to, you know, to keep up uh, the momentum and go on and secure the game. But Morocco did well to come back. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. That goal also from a set piece, free kick. Shibi sort of redeeming himself for giving up that uh, penalty that opened the scoring. He chipped it in, Bader Benoun, typical captain's effort, popped up, header past Raiz uh, Mbulhi, and we were off to extra time. Um, but it did seem that at some point, definitely in the second half of extra time, both teams were sort of settled in, in waiting for penalties. So what was your perspective? Yeah, it seemed like that towards the, towards the end of the game. And... Uh, it was like a foregone conclusion. And we were all debating you know, which side would come, on, come out on top psychologically after this game. And uh, I thought you know, after Morocco had come back to equalize that 
they would have the upper hand psychologically. But the fans uh, were louder. Am I correct? In the fans were out? much louder. The fans were louder and larger in number. Yeah. Because they had covered uh, not just the, the side of the main stand that they were allocated, but also behind the, the goal as well. And you couldn't see that for the Algerian fans. So uh, we were expecting it to go their way. But uh, I think Algeria kept their nerve pretty well. And Rice and Bolly did well to save the penalty, the decisive penalty. So um, congratulations to Algeria. I think, I think it was uh, the kind of match that uh, we would have wanted to watch in the final. You know, yeah. in a in well, full stadium. Definitely, you'd want to see it in the final. But sometimes, you know, the the knockout stages don't work out the way you want. So at least we got to see that match. It would have been a shame not to see it at all. Uh, Marona, I want to come to you. So there is a little facet in penalty kick shootouts, and I thought there were two things that were going to be very important when the two captains sort of went to um, do the coin flip to determine which side and who goes first. And how important do you think, I've looked it up, up. I don't know if you know this statistic, how important is it to go first in a penalty kick shootout? A lot, because psychologically speaking, uh, when you you need to, uh, when you need to set the bar, okay, it's it's difficult, but, you can you can do it. There's no one to uh, match. But when you come second, you need to match the others. Uh, uh, either he scored, and you need to match him, or you need to uh, out uh, outperform him and score your penalty. So uh, I think it's very important to start first. Uh, that's why there was talks in FIFA to make the uh, penalties like. Not the A B A B A B B A A B B A A. I think they call it the ABBA format for all you Swedish musical fans out there. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's very important, and yeah, we have something in in the Arab world. We call them the strikes of luck, which very. It's very downgrading and it's very, uh, I don't know, uh, it shows our mentality. You know, if you want me to go on another rant, I can go now. But yeah, it shows in, there's, there's a reason that a, a national team like Germany do not lose on penalties or they have a high success rate in penalties. Do not assume they, they want 100% of their penalties. But yeah, yeah when... In the Euros and uh, the final, Italy versus England, I've rewatched the game and I watched some analysis about how Donnarumma saved those two uh, two last kicks. Uh, you can see there's science behind it. There's work you need to check that you need to work on yourself as a goalkeeper and as a shooter. Here in, in the Arab world, I, I'm sure it's not the case in like Qatar, Saudi, Morocco, Algeria or something like that. But we we don't really train for them. We just do like the last 50 minutes of the last uh, training session and shoot some goals and let's see how it happens. Ah, he shoots good. He shoots it first. There's like a whole science behind it. You need to time your reaction. As a goalkeeper, you need to react as late as possible. As a shooter, you need to to bluff the goalkeeper as much as you can. Yeah. But, uh, but I would say so. That statistic. Um... 
based yeah. on analysis of Euro and World Cup matches only, so it doesn't take into all the other continental tournaments, but it's 60% uh, your chances of winning if you kick first. So I thought that was an incredibly important thing that Algeria win that or either Algeria or Morocco win that. I also thought from the Algerian perspective, you wanted to be kicking at the goal where they kicked. So they ended up winning both the coin tosses and, and on TV, I saw that like Algeria was done early on with their team talk. Raiz Mbolhi went, he was waiting for Bedir Benoun, but Morocco was delayed for whatever reason. So Raiz Mbolhi just like went back, yeah, he just went away. Like he went back to his touchline. And then sort of he got into the mind games of like, oh, okay, you're ready? Okay, now I'll come out. Um, but I think super, super important, at least on TV, uh, to not kick towards the goal where all the Moroccan fans were sitting. So I, I thought, you know, you might want to dismiss elements of luck. I do think that Algeria got lucky to win both coin tosses. And I think if, if they hadn't, things might have been different. Now, I know you just dumped on maybe how Arabs train for penalties. I think, to be fair, these two sets of sides, they couldn't have taken better penalties. There was only one uh, penalty that was missed. It was saved by Raiz uh, and 5-3. And I do have to say this, that Zneti, the Moroccan goalkeeper, he could have saved a couple. I, you know, that third penalty that Morocco took, I didn't like the run-up. I forget who the player was who took that. I didn't like the run-up at all. And Zneti got a finger to it, and it hit the post, and it went in. So, you know, you might dismiss strokes of luck. I think there were some strokes of luck. Wouldn't you agree, Ahmed? Yeah, definitely. The... the... The part that you said about the goal, the choosing to kick at the other goal and not the one uh, behind which the Moroccan fans were, you know, congregated in, in such large numbers. And it's not just the numbers, the passion that they had. You could see that when uh, when they scored, when Algeria scored and they were running to celebrate. I'm sure you might have seen the photos where they were uh, showing some very insulting uh, signs and then gestures to the Algerian players. So um, you can imagine the, the level that it will, it will get to if it's a penalty shootout in front of them. So Algeria was very lucky not to be shooting at, at, in that goal. And uh, from there on, they were very cool with their efforts. And they were also lucky with the, with the one that you mentioned. It slipped through the goalkeeper's uh, hands and hit the post and went in. I think they were very lucky with that. If that had missed, if they had missed that effort, maybe the the fortunes could have tilted in, in Morocco's favor. So uh, there is an element of luck as always, but uh, there's also uh, uh, having a cool head and a bit of strategy. And I think Raiz Mbol, he was, uh, I think he was spot on with what he did. Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, it's a pity that Mahad isn't with us today. But I'd love to speak about this man's career because you see him with the Algerian national team and he is like one of the best goalkeepers in the world. You look at his career. I mean, he has played for really never in, I think he was in France for a while, for a hot second, and then flamed out at Rennes, at the Ajaccio. Um, but the most of his career was Sessica Sofia, three different stints, Slavia Sofia. Uh, he was in Turkey for a minute, Greece for a minute. Um, fans of the Philadelphia Union and MLS uh, don't have good things to say about him. Now playing his trade in Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, it's a CV. This guy is a journeyman, completely forgettable goalkeeper, but I mean, some sort of magic happens 
when he puts on that Algeria jersey. And such a such a great character. Um, excited uh, that I, iconic iconic feel to him. You know, like uh, you would put it for Higueta or or someone of that stature. You know, yeah, like a person who's totally crazy. And yeah. also, I would say, does not like the Mexican goalkeeper for the World yeah. Cup. Yeah, he, he, does he not only performs in the World Cup. Exactly, exactly. He's a tournament goalkeeper. So an AFCON, a World Cup, he's going to be ready. And, you know, if you ask him to actually adhere to the uh, orthodox principles of goalkeeping, that's just not what he does. <laughs> you know, there's a couple of times during that game where I was like, what are you doing? But, you know, there are other Algerian goalkeepers that play in good leagues um, and they've never been able to, to displace him. And I think he just has that sort of command of, of the dressing room. He didn't uh, so even we, celebrate. He didn't even celebrate after making that save. No. He, just, was, he, cool he turned back and walked very, uh, you know, without any emotions. Yeah. Uh, so I guess final thoughts on Algeria and uh, Morocco, who, you know, it's very unfortunate that they're going, that they're going home because they've had a fantastic tournament. Um, final thoughts on this, guys, before we get into who they will play next uh, in the semifinals. Going once, going twice. Ahmed, do you have something to say? Uh, I think uh, Algeria will be uh, delighted to get past this challenge. As I said, uh, this could have been a final if the result with Egypt had gone the other way. So uh, they will be glad to get past this. And I think uh, although Qatar is uh, it's a pretty good team when they play at home and uh, there will be a lot of uh, pressure on uh, Algeria as well when they play against Qatar and, and uh, I think the crowd will be in favor of Qatar but still the Algerian crowd I think will be much more louder than the Qatari fans you know yeah. so so I think that game will be uh, less challenging psychologically than what they saw in against Morocco so it's a very very impressive result for them the way things turned out and they deserve uh, the celebrations that that we have seen now in, in Algeria and in other parts of the world. I think Morocco too can be proud of their efforts in this tournament. They've done pretty well with the squad that they have. And at least some of the players can uh, challenge for a place in, in the first, first team. Definitely, definitely. So let's get to uh, Qatar. Before we get to Qatar and circling back to Ahmed to get his thoughts on this national team and how their progress has been, uh, I guess we're going to have something of a regular feature, which is we throw the Maron to um, completely... Uh, just devastates the uh, morale of fans of West Asian football. Um, so the UAE, what the heck happened, Marwan? What do you have to say for a team that in the first half was down 5-0, that included two penalties and an own goal? Uh, I really, really want to get your thoughts on just how bad the UAE were in this game. Yeah, uh, when I saw the scoreline, uh, just like 5-0 at halftime, I got uh, uh, flashes of uh, a particular World Cup semi-final in 2014. So uh, I was surprised to see Qatar not score in the second half, but yeah, there was rotation and they, they kind of tuned down their game a little bit in the second half for Qatar. Yeah, uh, UAE. That's UAE. The game. I've watched uh, UAE in the uh, World Cup qualifiers. Of course, they're in our group, and 
yeah, when you can't score versus Lebanon in two games, except from a penalty that's uh, that's a little bit in a, from a 50-50 situation, it says a lot about you, especially when you were dominated in the second game versus Lebanon. We're talking, not playing for Qatar. They will demolish you, especially when Qatar are under pressure to perform at home. Ahmed will talk a, a more about that. To perform at home, to be ready for, to prove that they are ready for the World Cup. So mix that all up together with, a, uh, yeah. To sum it up, uh, money do not buy you progress. That's for sure. And the coach, he was, he was, he had to be sacked after the game versus Lebanon. I think, in my opinion, he should not have come. To, to Qatar to uh, they should have been a new coach for uh, Emirates and that was a talking uh, I knew that inside the uh, UAE FA there was like a stipulation for Van Marvick to get four points out of six in the last two games uh, I think the window of November uh, versus Lebanon and I think versus Iran no not Iran uh, versus South Korea and he got only three from Lebanon. So if he did not get a four four points, he would have been sacked. I don't know why he wasn't sacked, but the, he should have been sacked for yeah, a second I think time. Part of what's helping years. Van Marwijk right now is that they might have targeted four points, but that win against Lebanon, against all odds, has them in the, the playoff spot. And I think realistically, that's what they were targeting to to begin with going into World Cup qualifying. But they, they didn't deserve anyone versus no, Listen, I, that's, I have that's to say about the UAE, both about the players and the coach. Um, let me start with the players because a lot of people are going to be dumping on them, Marvaik. But for Ali, Ali Mabhout was the man they interviewed after this 5-0 drubbing. And for a guy, I understand he didn't start the match. He came on in the second half. But for a guy on the wrong end of a 5-0 drubbing, way, way, way too casual. And this isn't a 5-0 against a Morocco or an Algeria. You know, aside, let's say you're just unfamiliar with them and it is a step up in quality. These are your regional rivals. You face them every two years at the Gulf Cup. You probably run into them here and there in quality. You, you know these guys in and out. And the last time you met at a, at least at a major international tournament, I'm not putting the golf cup in that category. I know some fans of golf football will get mad at me for that. But the one we all remember is what happened at the Asian cup on your home turf in your capital city, where they embarrassed you 4-0 and where the fans embarrassed themselves by throwing their shoes and bottles onto the pitch. How you can come out and be so casual leads me to think that there is serious underlying issues that go past the coach. As far as the coach is concerned, how you, how, how you have it in you to come out and say you were the better team and played football in the first half because you might have had 71% possession, but you ate five goals. I don't care if two were from the penalty and one was an own goal. Like, <laughs> you can't say that. You cannot say that. And I think on... On the face of that, he, he deserves to lose his job. I know that he's probably out of the 16 coaches that came to this tournament, the one most likely to lose his job. We haven't had any sackings uh, as of yet at the time of recording. 
but dear God, like it's not going to change anything because you know this Emirati squad. Uh, I thought they got a very easy group in World Cup qualifying. They made a mess of it. It's the reason why Van Marwijk was fired in 2019. But the FA also hasn't done themselves any favor. They cycled through two coaches in 2020. They had Jorge Luis Pinto and Ivan Jovanovic. And then they went back to Van Marwijk. And I think they're just the only reason they got out of the group at the Arab Cup, the only reason they're sitting in third place in the World Cup qualifying group is kind of because the teams around them sort of tripped over their own shoelaces. Um, and I think that's that's all that can be said about UAE. Uh, you know, I always feel a little bit bad when I call teams out, but I will say that out of the original four panel members we had, I was the only one to predict them to crash out the, of the group stage and I called them frauds. Okay, they got out of the group stage, uh, but only by the skin of their teeth, only because results elsewhere went their way and Mauritania beat uh, Syria. And I just think that this team, they've been living off of embers. And I do not regret calling them frauds in our initial podcast, but they've been living off of embers of that 2015 Asian Cup. And that's all I'm going to say about the UAE. And now I think we sort of have to give a congratulations to Qatar for a job well done. It seems that game by game in this tournament, they're getting stronger and stronger, although they've had something of a golf cup path to the semifinal. I think the real business starts uh, on Wednesday in that semifinal against Algeria. Ahmed, what are your thoughts on this team? I'd really like to get somebody who knows Qatari football better than the four panelists who've been on the show. Um, so let us know what's sort of like the inside take on this team. I know they had a bit of a wobble going into the Arab Cup because results in European qualifying weren't so great. 4-0 loss to Ireland, 4-0 loss to, I believe it was Serbia as well. They, 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 Magic Eye 2019 sort of rubbed off, but what's the feeling now in Doha now that the team is in a semifinal? Well, to be honest, uh, I wasn't very optimistic going into this tournament because we're coming off the back of some very disappointing results in Europe, as you said, defeats to Portugal, Serbia, Ireland, and it's not like we expect to defeat those teams, but we at least hope that the results were uh, uh, not that disappointing or not, not that big, 4-0 defeats and, and uh, even the performances were not convincing. We could put up a fight at least and it, there's nothing to lose. But uh, it was very difficult to watch. So I wasn't expecting much going into this tournament. And to be honest, from the first game against Bahrain and the second one against Oman, uh, we could see that the team was still struggling. But it was in that final game against Iraq when Sanchez uh, changed his squad around a bit brought in some of the, the second string, if I may say so, and rested some of his key players. And he managed that, that game against Iraq. If you watch that game, you will say that he managed it pretty well with his substitutions. And he brought in those fresh legs at, at a very suitable time and he killed off Iraq in, in the final 10 minutes. That's the kind of game that I would like Qatar to play. That's the kind of uh, style that I would like Sanchez to have, to use his squad well, to use his substitutions well. And we haven't seen that in, in quite some time now. So that Iraq game was sort of a turning point, but also we could say that Iraq was, uh, was struggling at that point in time. And uh, there was, uh, Qatar had already qualified. So it was, a, it was a difficult parameter if you uh, think of it in that way. But going into this game against the UAE, I saw a lot of Qatari fans telling the team not to underestimate the UAE, to keep the Asian Cup and the Gulf Cup victories out of your minds, 
and to focus on this game as a separate game, saying that the UAE is not a team to be taken lightly. Obviously, there were a lot of jokes about the, the two uh, four-goal wins, but uh, I think the people were uh, really, really, uh, you know, not, optim- not pessimistic, but fearful of something bad happening in, in such a scenario, playing in front of such a big crowd and uh, losing their bragging rights over the UAE. But as it turned out, there was no fear of that. You know, we didn't have to be uh, apprehensive of anything like that because the way they played in that first half was simply amazing. To be able to pounce on mistakes and to make every chance count, that is the kind of clinical team that we want. And they did that with, what, 27% of the possession? Uh, I don't know what Van Marwijk meant by saying that his team played better. Maybe you had more of the ball, but you have a shot on target. That's what counts. Yeah, I, I didn't get what he said from, from that. You know, I do know that we've seen some high-scoring matches in this uh, in this tournament. My team, unfortunately, was on the end of a uh, 5-1 loss. But that wasn't just me coming out and trying to defend my team to say that they played well. Almost every single commentator that saw that particular game said it wasn't really a 5-1 match. This, you know, I'm trying to kind of cut Van Marvijk some slack. I cannot think of what he said because it wasn't like that possession actually resulted on in shots on goal or any real chances. I thought the I thought the forwards were completely isolated. You know, a lot of the play was just in the middle, and then just elementary mistakes. Yeah, you know, you kick yourself for making those elementary mistakes, but I would think that a team that is in by FIFA rankings, I think the top eight in Asia, I don't think I'm mistaken in saying that. They've always consistently been in that category for the last six, seven years now. I would expect not to see these mistakes. These are the types of mistakes I would expect, you know, some of the lower ranked nations uh, in this tournament to make. Um, your, your Sudan, your Mauritania. We've seen them make those mistakes. And then we also understood that this is what we expected. This is what their level was. I don't expect the team that made the semifinals of the last two Asian Cups to make such elementary mistakes. Um, that said, I do think it is a sign of Qatar's maturity that they were able to capitalize on mistakes because good teams uh, can do that and they punish you and they don't. you don't need to give them two or three chances to punish you. They take that one chance and they punish you and they finish you off. So I guess the question for you, Ahmed, now is does Qatar have a chance against this Algeria side? given the fact that when they faced stronger opposition, and I really struggle in calling Ireland stronger stronger opposition, but they did beat them 4-0. Um, do they have a chance of upsetting uh, Algeria in the semifinal? Uh, to start with, the thing that has to be said about those European results is that you could divide that, that campaign into two parts. You know, the first leg, when they played against Ireland, the performance was much better. When they played against... Uh, Portugal, not Portugal, I think Azerbaijan and Luxembourg and those games, obviously those opponents are not of the same weight as Serbia and Portugal, but those early games in the European qualifiers were much, much better in terms of performances, in terms of approach to the game and the mentality that the players showed. So when they moved into the latter part of the campaign, I think I think fatigue played a role. I think these players have been overused and uh, the schedule has been very, very congested for them with their clubs as well. So I think that could have played a part in, in the in the results and the kind of results that we saw in those last few games. But uh, in this tournament, 
you can say that they've improved from one game to the next and to come into this game against the UAE where there's a lot riding on the on them and there is a lot of pressure to perform and there's a lot of history as well to play the way they did to show the maturity that they did i think that shows that they have grown and they have the ability to to you know to be really good and to make the most of their potential because i think they have the potential to beat algeria and they've done it in the past i think Qatar defeated Algeria in a friendly in 2018 uh, when Algeria played with their first team. And five of those players are in the squad today, or uh, I think more than five of them. And uh, it's not like these players don't know the Algerian squad. Most of the players, or at least I think three or four players have played in the QSL. And uh, I think Algeria also knows Qatar very well. You know, you could say that as well. Majid Bougarra uh, played in Qatar. He coached in Qatar and uh, these players know some of their teammates in the national team. So it's going to be very uh, interesting to see how that works out. So it will be a tough game because after having seen Algeria play against Morocco and uh, in this tournament, you would expect uh, Algeria to be the favorites. But I hope Qatar live up to the occasion playing in front of their home fans and, and make this a really, really memorable result. If they can defeat Algeria and go on to win this tournament, it will be a big, big push for them on, on the path to the World Cup. Yeah, and I guess another interesting point, a subplot in this game is that uh, Qatar is now the national team of uh, Boualem Khoukhi and Karim Boudaif, who are incidentally of Algerian heritage, uh, one born in France, the other born in Algeria before they moved to Qatar to uh, play football. Um, let me ask you this. One, where is this game being played? Is this at Al Bayt Stadium, which has been, I think, a nice home to Qatari football so far? At Thumama. It's at Thumama. At, at Thumama. Okay. So not at their fortress where they have yet to concede a goal and where they've won all their matches. And I did hear the PA commentator in one of the games during the quarterfinal stage say tickets are still available. Um, yeah. What are the fans waiting for in Qatar? Shouldn't the semis and the final be sellouts already? Uh, to be honest, I think they were waiting to see if Qatar reached uh, the, the semifinal. And uh, once Qatar reached the semifinals, uh, people were buying it up uh, very fast. As of now, if you go on to the website, it shows that the tickets are currently unavailable. That doesn't mean sold out because I've seen a few Algerian accounts saying that tickets are sold out. What that means is the organizers are trying to allocate the tickets uh, in a fair manner and trying to ensure that Algerian fans and Qatari fans are separated. And they, I think they try to fill up one section of the stand first and then move on. And they try to allocate tickets uh, accordingly to, you know, to, to the website, to the offline purchase centers. So they have their own criteria and uh, methods when it comes to uh, the ticketing process. So when it says currently unavailable, it doesn't mean sold out, but I think it is on its way to being sold out. And uh, this is the kind of match that you would want to watch Qatar play. It's uh, the kind of challenge that they really, really require, even though it's not the, the Algerian first team. Some of the players uh, in the squad have won the African Cup of Nations and uh, I mean, we know who Belayli is, we know who Brahimi is. So if you are a Qatari and if you're watching this and you, have st you still haven't bought your ticket, please do go and buy a ticket. Okay, should be a, a good match there. Let's talk about the other side of the bracket that featured um, really competitive matches. You know, we sort of had the 
narrative of, well, the North African sides are just so much better than the West Asian sides, but Oman and Jordan, Jordan who we will speak uh, about first, uh, had very, very good performances before sort of wilting uh, away in the face of, I think, superior quality in the shape of Tunisia and Egypt, respectfully. respectively. Um, Maron, you're here to kind of rain on people's parades. Tell the Jordanian fans why they shouldn't be proud of their national team. Uh, yeah, uh, lots of reasons. No, uh, I think that the loser in my match between Egypt and Jordan is Egypt and Jordan. I think they Jordan were, yeah, average, which is good. But Egypt underperformed, in my opinion. Uh, they were Jordan were far better on the counterattacks. Uh, they posed a very good threat, especially in that first half. I, I think that Jordan were close to score not just once, multiple times. But uh, yeah, on paper, Egypt should not have used 120 minutes in order to beat Jordan. That's uh, and even though that uh, there's no foreigners in, or pro players in Egypt, yeah, but. The, the difference in the quality between the two national teams is different. Uh, is very far, is very big. Egypt is way better than Jordan in every aspect in defense, goalkeeping. Uh, yeah, uh, just Shinewe, uh I liked I liked what I saw from them. The defense of Egypt was uh, very bad. The link between the midfield and the defense in in the transition defensive transition or trying to build up from the back is very poor at Egypt. Uh, I think that if uh, if not for that yellow card, I don't see Egypt making it to the semifinals versus yeah, Algeria. I, mean. I do think they caught a break by facing uh, the runner-up in Group C. For those of you who didn't watch this mm -hmm. game, very entertaining first half because it totally flipped the script. We thought Jordan would just sit in the low block. Instead, they uh, sat in kind of a medium block. They pressed Egypt. They did quite well. And they took the lead after, I think, only 11, 10 or 11 minutes from Yezin Namath. Uh, really nice strike to kind of just curl it past the Shinawi. And then Shinawi was called on a bunch of times after that to keep it just 1-0. Uh, and I think it was Ali Ulwan who hit the crossbar. Uh, and then Egypt just got a lucky break that it bounced uh, on the ground and out instead of on the ground and in. Um, but I have to say, the first 45 minutes, I thought Egypt were completely asleep. They were just, uh, it's almost as if they were facing Jordan in a group stage match where they already had like enough points in their bag and they weren't too concerned. It was a very, very strange uh, vibe. And I'm wondering, do we think this is a little bit on Carlos Kirosh that he just misread this game because it just seems so weird that they came out flat against the team that I thought was there for the taking, right? Like Jordan, this was their best game of the tournament. And in the group stages, you know, they needed an own goal to beat Saudi Arabia, the young team in the South, on the Saudi side that couldn't really deal with 10 men Jordan, right? And then they went down to 10 men themselves, got blasted by Morocco 4-0. 
And even in the Palestine game, I mean, it was like touch and go for long, long portions of that game. What what happened here? Did, do we have any idea of if is this sort of just like Carlos Kirosh getting out coached by Ahmed, uh, Adnan Hamad? Ahmed, go ahead. Yeah. I think it was uh, just as you mentioned, uh, when I started watching the game, I thought that Jordan were simply amazing from the start. The way they they began the match, the momentum and the intensity that that they had, and if that uh, I'm not sure who took that shot, uh, the one that Shinawi just tipped out. Uh, I think if that had gone in, it would have been a, a big big change for uh, for Jordan. Another way the match was going on at that point, and I think until the introduction of Afsha and and was that Sharif from Sharif. Until that point, uh, Egypt really did not have the kind of hold that they would have liked to have on the game, uh, even though they had equalized before that. So I think uh, it was it was very surprising to see them, as you said, to go on until 120 minutes to, to defeat Jordan. So maybe this will also affect their preparation and their chances in, in against Tunisia, I think, who look uh, like a much better side going into the semifinal. Yeah, 100%. You know, I thought some of, I thought what might have changed in the game plan a little bit was the fact that Egypt grabbed the equalizer right at the first half. And, you know, in the second half, I would say this about Carlos Karish's side. I saw a, a lot of them at the last Asian Cup and was there in the stands when they lost to uh, Japan in a semifinal where they were slight favorites. I fear for any Carlos Karish side that, that, you know, goes down 1 0. Because I'm not sure his philosophy is really geared towards going all out to try and score a goal. His philosophy, I and mean, I think it works great, and he's had a lot of success with, I mean, you name the national teams on three different continents. Got South Africa to the 2002 World uh, Cup. Uh, got Portugal to the 2010 World Cup. Got uh, Iran to the 2014 and 2018 World Cup and were very good value for their money there. That said, if his teams go down, uh, things look a little bit shaky because his style is I'm going to keep possession. I'm going to limit my mistakes and through keeping possession, I will just sort of neutralize you in a Chinese water torture type method uh, and just get a complete stranglehold on this game. I didn't see a lot of that against Jordan because Jordan enjoyed a lot of the possession. I thought this would be one of these games where, you know, Jordan would end up with like 30% possession and Egypt with 70%. And although Egypt came into the game, especially after running to extra time, and they did, I think, boost their possession numbers, it was not 70-30. And it wasn't like that in the first half or even at the end of 90 minutes. Um, I think a little bit, and this is a theory that is unsubstantiated, and I think Jordanian fans will get a little bit angry at me. And I was a little emotionally raw in our last podcast, <laughs> despite my greatest efforts not uh, to be as neutral as possible. Um, I think part of what they said in that Egyptian locker room was just, okay, it's 1-1. Let's go back to the game plan. Let's switch up a little bit uh, our positioning on the pitch. Let's just push forward a little bit. Let's make sure that our striker isn't too isolated and we have a guy playing next to him and that there's service um, coming in from the wings because we know that the Jordanians are vulnerable to that. But I did think at times Jordan could have done a smash and grab, uh, especially, you know, when certain things started to break in their favor. Uh, I tweeted that, uh, I think his name is Hussein Faisal, 
did his best Muhammad Salim impersonation where he completely whiffed on the ball with the uh, net just wide open at his mercy. I will say this. This is my theory about Jordan. I don't think Jordan, uh, and I haven't looked it up, so maybe maybe Maron has these statistics, but Jordan is not a team that wins an extra time. Maybe they take you to penalties and they beat you on penalties. And I remember they did that against Uzbekistan in the 2014 World Cup qualifying playoff. But they are not a team that has the energy, the extra gear to take you down an extra time. Why? Well, because I think a lot of their players have like a half a pack a day smoking habit. And, you know, people would come out, oh, you're so substantiated. How could you say this? How could you go yourself in journalists? Well, let me tell you something. One of my favorite stories of the 2015 Asian Cup was that after Palestine and Jordan played each other, both sets of teams were fined $1,000 by Australian authorities because both of them uh, were caught smoking in the dressing rooms. And just looking at the faces of some of these guys, I mean, Yazid Abulela, the Jordanian goalkeeper, this guy looks like a dude who rolls his own cigarettes. Uh, Yassine Bakhit also looks like I have a huge smoking habit. The left back, Hassan Haddad, left back or right back? One of the wing backs. Uh, looks like a guy with a huge smoking habit. And I just felt that, okay, an extra time, Egypt sort of switched it on a little bit. They got the second, they got the third, and Jordan was just was just spent because I have, admir- I have admiration for how they um, deal with their national team and the support they give their national team. And they make sure that they play a lot of friendlies and uh, Prince Ali doesn't spare any expense getting this team to be very competitive uh, on the Asian level. But their league is just as bad as any other West Asian league out there. Uh, and the thing about guys enjoying a shisha or having a half a pack a day habit, um, those are very true. And I think there are some of those elements in the national team. So once it went to extra time, I was like, yeah, I don't think they can win this game. Like maybe, maybe if they take it, maybe if they take it to penalties, but I really thought they would wilt in extra time. And that's what really happened to them at the last Asian Cups, I think they lost to Uzbekistan in extra time in 2011, uh, 2015 and getting out of the groups. In 2019, they lost to Vietnam on uh, on penalties as well. So not a team that can play 120 minutes of football and definitely not when you're playing against an Egyptian side that is more uh, experienced and polished, shall we say. Uh, final thoughts on Jordan versus Egypt before we get into the last match of the quarterfinal stage. To me? Uh, either you or Maron, if you want to jump in. I think it was uh, if Egypt had lost, you know, we would have lost the Egyptian fans because they've been fantastic through this tournament. And uh, yesterday as well, they were there in large numbers. Uh, I expected the match to be sold out because of the sizable Jordanian community we have here in Doha as well, but it wasn't sold out, but it was almost, I think, uh, around 80% full. And uh, at least for them, I would say that they deserve to go through and we would like to see them again because we've had a lot of uh, fans from all of these different countries attend these games and contribute to making this tournament, uh, you know, the kind of success that it has been. It's not just a success on the pitch, but it's been off the pitch as well. So um, I'm really excited to see them return against Tunisia, which is going to be a cracking uh, North African derby. So uh, that's one aspect that uh, I'm, I'm happy about after that result. But Jordan played really well in the first half. Seeing I only watched the first half properly. So when I saw those chances that they came up with, uh, I was thinking, you know, when they missed it, that it's going to bite them. 
it's going to come back to haunt them and it did yeah uh, i mean they barely defended a, a two nil lead against uh, palestine before eventually emerging victorious i think it would have been very interesting watching had they taken a two nil lead against egypt um but i think this is one of the great things about this tournament is that this is a surprise and this also shows um, the depth of quality, like, yeah, obviously most of the good footballers and most of the good football play is played in North Africa, but there is quality in certain pockets, uh, despite what Maron would have us believe about West Asian football. Um, our last West Asian, our last North African opponent for the night before we wrap things up, Tunisia against Oman. The one thing I liked about this game was uh, Munzer Kber, who might um, give us a bit of an exclusive, on the hot seat and he's going to get fired if he doesn't win this tournament uh said was interviewed and somebody said oh a good result after a not so uh an inauspicious group stage and then he just looked at him it's like inauspicious group stage we won our group with six points what are you talking about so um interesting uh game here as well because it didn't take it didn't go to script uh tunisia took the lead oman came back but they only kept it one one for a very brief uh period before tunisia made it 2-1 and then wrap things up. Maron, what do you think we can say about uh, Ahmed's national team? I thought they they have to think this is a good tournament. I thought they performed well in every single game they played and they were good value for what is going to amount to be a, a top eight finish at this tournament. Yeah, uh, Ahmed were good, Tunisia were better. I think that in our prediction last time out, we said that Tunisia was a favorite to win, and uh, it was proven. I did not catch the game in the entirety. I've watched some extended highlights. But yeah, it seemed that Tunisia had the upper hand uh, in the entire of that game. And I think it's from what I've saw from Tunisia, even in that 2-0 loss versus Syria, they were the better team. So, uh, yeah, nothing nothing to be ashamed, though, from Oman. Uh, they're not yet at the level of... The whole football in West Asia is not at the level of uh, North African level of football. But... Uh, and we're not getting any closer anyway. But, yeah, uh, I think it's uh, it was a good game. Uh, the better team won. And, yeah, they, they should be proud to finish in between the uh, top half of that tournament, I think. And they're not the worst teams in the in this uh, quarterfinal. So, yeah, I think they make like sixth or seventh best team in the tournament. Yeah, well, they're definitely yeah. better than UAE, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, better but, than Jordan, too. <laughs> I was about probably, uh, probably better than Jordan. I mean, Jordan is... is uh, it's kind of strange with Jordan, right? I would say that their team, their fans are all doom and gloom and nobody liked uh, Adnan Hamid coming back and they all gave him grief after he lost 4-0 to Morocco. But I thought they had a good tournament uh, in general. And I do think, although I, uh, there's a reason why Adnan Hamid never got the big job, never got to lead his own national team at senior level. I think there's just something magical about him leading Jordan. It was just a good fit. Um, for that. But I think for from the Omani perspective, listen, um, this is a team that is definitely more than the sum of its parts. I saw some good young players at this tournament. Uh, they had some really nice moments to look back on. Uh, Khaled Hajari's header against Qatar 
was, I think, what you want in a national team, pure grit, just to fight two defenders and get your head on the ball. Um, and in this game, that, that equalizing goal from Arshad uh, Alwani was really, really good. He's only 21 years old. So uh, I think a lot of positives to take for Oman. And, I'm, you know, they might cause a surprise in World Cup qualifying. Things are not all settled in that Group B just yet. It'll be tough. Obviously, Australia, Japan are in there in the mix to either get the for that third place spot. Um, but I wouldn't count them out. I would not count them out just yet. And I think this was a good learning experience. Uh, I see you nodding your head. Uh, thoughts on, on this match? Well, I think when I, when I look at Oman, always, I'm always reminded of their golden generation. Back in the mid 2000s, when they had uh, Al Al Habsi, Imad Al Hosni, Badal Maimani, uh, Fauzi Bashir, and, and that wonderful group of players who reached three consecutive Gulf Cup finals. And although they didn't quite shine at the Asian stage or go into the final stage of the playoffs of the World Cup qualifying, I think it was a wonderful team to watch. And they were very much valued in the Gulf. They were playing in the top leagues in, in Qatar, in Saudi Arabia, in UAE. And that's not the case now. So it's, it's like, if you look at uh, Oman, their golden generation has gone and they've not quite recovered from that ever since. So even then, to put up performances like the one that they just showed us in, in this tournament and also in, in the World Cup qualifying when they've defeated Japan uh, in Japan, which I think is a fantastic result. So looking at that, I think it's, it's a very, very impressive performance from a very young and talented team that nobody really fancies. So I think teams like the UAE can learn something from Oman, you know, from their neighbors, because they too have had their golden generation, like you said, and they peaked in 2015. And even after that, they've not been able to, you know, move past that and create something new. So they, it's time that they take a leaf out of Oman's book and, and learn something. Yeah, um, I, I would agree 100% with that sentiment. Obviously, a team that is... Uh, as I said before, greater than the sum of their parts. And, you know, there's something about watching somebody's national team when you can really feel that everyone is on board with the same mission, they know their jobs, and they're just out there to execute. And, you know, national team football is a bit of an equalizer because, first of all, these, these players can't spend a ton of time together just because of club commitments. And, you know, if you don't have a left back or right back or striker or midfielder, you got to deal with it. You either got to find them in your country or find one with a connection to your country in the diaspora or, or else that's just your problem. So it is a bit of a, an equalizer. And I think in the Middle East in particular, yeah, there are some very, very rich countries that spend a lot of money on football, but we all know that this is the game of uh, kind of the, the working costs, if you will. And if you don't have boys and girls playing in, in the street, it's very hard to try and substitute that with academy academy products. Not to say that doesn't that, that stuff doesn't help, but I think um, we've definitely seen evidence of a lot of national teams that are punching above their weight just because they play with passion. They've got the right coach in charge. Everyone knows their job, and they execute. And football is a game where you can have seventy three percent possession and lose five uh, nil just in the first half. That's part of. Um, the beauty that you can win a game in a lot of different ways. Um, 
So uh, to wrap things up, I'd like to get some predictions for the semifinal and final stage. So the next time we record, that will be our final uh, podcast. Uh, we've recorded four. That will be our fifth episode. Uh, let me recap some of the predictions. So Maron, you had Qatar winning it all. I, I had said Tunisia, so had uh, Maher. We both picked Jaziri for top scorer, and he is the top scorer in our four goals, so we're feeling good about that. Uh, Hassanin picked Egypt, so everyone from that original bunch is, uh, I think, safe as far as their picks are concerned. They could all still happen. Uh, Ahmed, I'll start with you as the substitute on this podcast. The super sub, I should point out, too, not just any old substitute. Uh, what are your predictions? Give me first, second, third, and fourth place because this is a tournament with a third place game. Uh, at the start of the tournament, if you'd asked me, I would have said Algeria would win it. And I still do think that they are the favorites. But uh, going into this semifinal game, uh, I'd like to silence the realist in me and you know try to be a little more optimistic. And I think uh, Qatar does have the potential to defeat Algeria because going into... Uh, I mean, looking back at this quarterfinal game last night, Algeria must be exhausted, not, not just physically, but also psychologically. And I'm not really sure if they can recover from that or if Majid Bugara is the kind of coach who can manage that team into uh, another big semifinal game. So I'm hoping that uh, Qatar will turn out much better because they've had quite enough rest. They've had another day, an extra day. And as you said, it was like a training game and they just only had to play one half of it against the UAE. So I do hope that, that they can benefit from that and uh, that they can learn uh, from this. Oh, we we yeah. lost your audio there just for the last five seconds or so. No, I, I, think, I think if they get past Algeria, they have what it takes to, to win the tournament and uh, defeat whoever it is, be it Egypt or Tunisia. So I'm going for Qatar. It's kind of a brave, uh, brave pick, but I'm going for Qatar to win the tournament by defeating Tunisia in the final. And uh, Algeria third and Egypt fourth. Okay. Uh, Maron, are you sticking with your prediction that Qatar wins this or are you going to change things up? No, I'm still going for Qatar. I think I have the same prediction as Ahmed, Qatar, Thomas, Algeria, and Egypt. I don't see Egypt performing well, uh, too. Yeah, I'm, I know I've been harsh on them, but yeah, uh, they really disappointed me versus Jordan. Yeah, well, I mean, I would like to remind you that you said uh, Saudi Arabia would not only just make it out of the group stage, but they would make it into the semifinal. Um, that did not happen and I think it's a just punishment for bringing a uh, intentionally weekend side so the Saudi players could have a break which I don't think they really needed in any case that's neither here nor there um, predictions on third and fourth place so I guess you're saying Qatar to beat Tunisia third fourth place Algeria to defeat Egypt no, not you Ahmed uh, Maron same Algeria to defeat okay, Egypt okay so we've got completely mirrored Predictions, so I will change things up. Uh, I had Tunisia winning it. It's kind of hard to pick against Algeria now, and I'm not sure if I should just stick with my original pick. Um, obviously, uh, I think to every single Palestinian person out there, Algeria is something of a second team 
Um, and I, I feared for them. I didn't think they'd be able to get past Morocco. And I'm gonna stick with I'm gonna stick with my initial prediction. I'm gonna say Tunisia to win. And I'm not sure, you know, I am worried about the just the fatigue element of of what Algeria just experienced. You know, that that game was played at such a pace that it seems like you would need almost a week to recover and that there would be a lot of walking wounded from that game. I would say the only positive from that game was the discipline they had uh, not to collect any other yellow cards. So if uh, Baghdad Bounajah comes back, uh, everybody will be healthy. Um, I'm going to say they get past Qatar uh, only just, only just. I mean, it might be another marathon game. It might go to penalties. Uh, Literally, the game will go like this. Either they can strike quickly in the first half uh, and get on top of Qatar and get a goal and sort of see out the the rest of the match, because that is something we have not seen from Qatar yet. We have not seen them go down a goal uh, in a game. We've seen them at 1-1, so we saw that bit of a wobble against Oman, but we haven't seen them actually go down a goal. And there were times at the tournament, right? Like, we are talking about Qatar coming off of a high, but when they started that first game against Bahrain in the opener, I do remember that Bahrain had like a chance in the first five minutes that should have been a goal. And that could have changed the entire trajectory of this team. Um, so it would be interesting to see how Qatar would respond to going a goal down. I don't believe in their run to the Asian Cup um, title, they were down a goal at any stage in their seven games. So this is something that's a bit of a mystery to me. I don't know how this team would react to going a goal down. I'm trying to scratch my head here, even with the Gold Cup matches they played. Uh, I don't think I don't think so either, right? So, um, and if they did, it might have been the match where they were knocked out by the was it the United the US. States semifinal. Yeah. Um, they got the penalty, yeah. Yeah. So, I would say Algeria makes it past Qatar only just Qatar will um, be up for it more in the uh, third place game, so they'll take third place, Egypt fourth. Um, but then I think, you know, Algeria would have gone through the ringer at that point. They would have defeated what was the best team from the group stage, Morocco. They would have gone against the hosts who were well-rested. Uh, and then they'll come up against the Tunisia side who, I think that's kind of what Tunisia does, right? They're um, a very effective team, not the sexiest team in North Africa. The other teams have the stars, but they are also a very effective team. And I think I don't know. I think that kind of that 2-0 loss against Syria helped them in a weird way, right? And I think they'll rally around their coach, and I think they'll win this for Monzer Kber. Obviously, I'd love to see Algeria win it, and I hope I'm wrong in a certain way, but I'll stick with my initial prediction, which is Algeria to win it. Um, yeah, and with that, we've come to the end of our fourth episode, the penultimate episode. The next time you will see us, we will know who's in the final who's in the third place game. Uh, and we'll be just a couple of days away to wrap up what I think has been a fantastic uh, tournament and a fantastic preview of uh, the Qatar World Cup 2022 next year. I want to thank Maron from FA Lebanon uh, for being with me for four straight episodes. Never took a day off, unlike the other two. Not that I hold it against them. And to our super sub, Ahmed Hashim, for giving us the inside look uh, of what's going on in Doha and what these games are like from the stadium. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. And to all our listeners, enjoy the football, and we will see you on the last episode of the FIFA Arab Cup Roundtable podcast. See you later.